How are we doing this morning? Well, you're going to have to uh, put your thinking caps on this morning. We're going to take a little trip back in time again. Uh, what we've been talking about in recent weeks, and we're going to be talking about myself as well as some of the other speakers, has been uh, basically surrounding the idea of the Word of God, particularly the written Word of God, the Scripture. And you know, we one of the values that we're really putting an emphasis on recent days here at the church is the value of development. It's one of five we've been talking a lot about. It's the idea that we, we grow up, that we become more mature in our faith, that as we're going along in life, we're getting to know who God is better, and we're drawing closer to Him, our hearts are connected with Him, and those kind of things. And one of the, the, one of the most significant uh, components of that is God's Word. And it should be a significant part of our lives. It's really, uh, you know, what's been handed down to and uh, very important for us to understand about God's Word, because I think here we are 2,000 years after Jesus was on the earth, and it can be very easy for us to just kind of go take things for granted. Well, this is the Bible, and this is what it says, and maybe it's true, and maybe it's not, and maybe it's accurate, and I don't know if I should take it that seriously or not. Uh, There's always been a cultural pressure uh, that's against the Word of God, because mankind is alienated from God and sinful, and so... Uh, it's, it's very important that we, we take some time to remind ourselves of why is the Bible the Word of God? Is it really the Word of God? Is it that authoritative? Should I be looking at it and studying it and drawing my spiritual encouragement and growth from it? If I don't, where do I get that? You know, where, where do we even know about the story of Jesus? How do we know that Jesus was on the earth? How do we know what he taught? How do we know the history of the church and all those kind of things? And it's, it's rooted in the word of God handed down to us. I want to start by reading out of 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. And t- Paul is writing to Timothy, who is someone who has learned from Paul and traveled with Paul and is growing up under Paul's uh, leadership. And he's talking about Timothy himself and saying, And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped, for every good work. How do we get equipped for every good work? How do we come to this idea of completeness? It's being acquainted with the sacred writings. It's knowing the Word of God. It's knowing what God has spoken into mankind and, and begin to implement amongst us. And I think we as every single individual, every one of us has a responsibility to be taking time to be in the Word of God, to study what God has said, to absorb His heart through his very words. When we call it the word of God, it's not just a historical record of things God has done. It is what God has said. It's divinely inspired. It's something I didn't cover a lot a couple weeks ago, is that really in order for something to qualify as the word of God, it has to be divinely inspired. God ultimately has to be the author of that. And that proves itself over time. There are many good writings. Uh, You know, there are a lot of good teachers. There's been a lot of good um, things that have come out. But only certain things are, have been authorized and inspired by God uh, directly. And so when we look at the Scriptures, we see God behind it. Today I'm going to start talking about two different things. I'm hoping to get through all of it, but we're going to talk about the New Testament canon, and we're going to talk about the Apocrypha. And two weeks ago I started talking to you about the Old Testament canon. Why is the Old Testament uh, books, why are they the Word of God? Why are they considered the Word of God? And, and we talked about that, and now we're going to start talking about the Apocrypha, which is a, a group of writings that is in between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. They're a group of Jewish writings that were written in those couple of centuries uh, leading up to Christ's arrival, and we looked at, at some of those writings a little bit last week, but I'm going to dive more into it in context of the New Testament canon. What is canon? Canon is the list of writings that belong in the Bible. The things that have been authorized as the Word of God that, that throughout history we've looked at and said, God has said these things. But as we're talking about them, it starts to bring up these issues of, well, what about the Eastern Orthodox Church? And what about the Catholic Church? And what about 
things like Mormonism and Islam that have these additional writings uh, beyond the Scripture. Why do we not include some of those writings in our canon? And so as we're talking about those things, I want to just say something um, about uh, <clears throat> attitude, our attitude. Uh, it's very easy when you're debating about the accuracy of things and who's right and who's wrong about things. It can become very contentious. And I want you to understand that's not my attitude at all, and I don't think it should be yours. That even though we disagree with other branches of Christianity and some of the things they decide, they've uh, adopted and ways they go about doing certain things, doesn't mean that we should sit here and throw rocks at them. They are our brothers and sisters, many of them, many of those groups. And I think that um, we have a lot more in common than we have different. And I think it's really important that we have a mindset of unity. It's not that we need to agree, and it's not that we need to accept, and it's not that we need to condone. But I think that we do need to watch our own heart and our own attitude, because we are not the judge, and we won't be our judge, and thank God we won't be. Right? We should be glad that God is the one on the throne and not us, because He is merciful, and He sees, and He understands, and He's the standard Himself. And so when we're talking about things, when I start talking about Catholicism or Mormonism, I want you to understand I'm, I don't bash these groups. I'm not here to destroy them. I'm not here to have a bad attitude about them, and I don't think you should either. And even as I'm talking about it, I'm going to try and give uh, Catholicism and particularly a fair shake at their perspectives on some of these things about the Apocrypha and the New Testament canon. And I'm not going to be able to even hardly scratch the surface on it, but you will catch some of that in what I'm saying today. I want you to understand we in no way would ever condone taking on a bad attitude towards Catholics or Eastern Orthodox or uh, Anglican churches, those kind of things. Absolutely not. Not acceptable. Uh, we have... I think, more in common. We come from the same roots. Uh, no different than uh, I, would, I would not encourage people to bash Jews. There was a lot of threads throughout Christianity that have taken a very anti-Semitic view of the Jews because Jesus was crucified by the Jews. But I think that's not fair. And I think that we should recognize that we have the same roots and we should respect those things and those beliefs in other people, okay? So I, I want to have an, a unified sort of attitude as I talk about some of these things. And if you, I have some Catholic background, a lot of my family does, many of you do, and uh, I think we need to be very cautious about the attitude we take on. So if you hear me talking about it, understand that's where I'm coming from. I briefly want to recap a couple of points from my message about the Old Testament canon, and because uh, it pertains to the New Testament canon and the Apocrypha. Number one, God himself began the process of writing his words. God wrote the first set of the Ten Commandments. He's the one that began to keep that written record, gave it to Moses, then began to instruct Moses, saying, write these things down, write these things down. These things are going to be the witness of the covenant between you and I. This is what our relationship is defined by, these writings that are my words. And he begins to instruct Moses, and then he promises Moses, I will raise up prophets from among you, brother, a brother from among you, and he will be the prophet, basically. He will speak on behalf of God. He will be the one who has author the authority of the word of God in his mouth. And so that becomes the foundation for where all the Old Testament writings gain their authority. Not all of the writings of the Old Testament were necessarily written directly by an Old Testament prophet, but the Jews accepted that because their process was looking at them as prophetic and then accepting them as authoritative, we trust that their judgment in that, that those writings were authorized by the prophets of the day. We also looked at uh, the fact that the Jews realized that with the death of Malachi, that the Holy Spirit had departed from Israel, that the line of the prophets had ended. That from the time of Moses till Malachi, there'd been a brother raised up from among the Jews that was a spokesperson for God, the ambassador of God. He interpreted the events of the Israelite people through God's eyes, and they understood what God's heart and attitude was behind them. There were lots of other writings and historical accounts that the Jews had, but these were the writings that were considered Scripture. They were the Word of God. They were the authoritative writings of the relationship between man and God. And so at that point, after Malachi, which is the last book of the Old Testament, they entered a time called the Silence of Heaven. The Jews themselves called it the Silence of Heaven. And uh, we looked at a couple of scriptures of that, or not scriptures, but a couple of the historical accounts of that, and we will do that, some more of that 
here in a minute. This was about 435 B.C., roughly, that this happened. So you have to, if you take yourself back in time and you consider what it must have been like for the Jews, they'd had this amazing experiences with Moses, this kind of chaotic relationship with God through the years, abandoning him, coming back to him, the temple being destroyed, the temple being rebuilt. They get to this point, after a few years, they're looking around going, where's the prophets? Where are the prophets? Where's the one who can speak on behalf of God and give us that kind of authoritative voice? They didn't have one. So for all of these years leading up to the coming of Christ, called the silence of heaven, they were waiting. And you can see in all their their historical writings, they were waiting for a prophet to appear. And guess who appears? Right before Jesus, John the Baptist. And they're going out to the Jordan River in droves. You have to consider what it was like at that time. A prophet has appeared. He's out of the Jordan River. He's preaching that the kingdom of God is near. And he's telling us we need to repent of our sins and turn away from that way of life and turn to God. And then he says, there's one who's coming whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. And Jesus comes on the scene and John the Baptist identifies him and Jesus gets launched into his ministry. But boy, when you go back and just kind of try and uh, empathize with their situation and look at it. It's just significant. It's an amazing story. Okay, so in this time frame, what, 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 what is the Apocrypha? You know, there are a lot of writings that are considered Apocrypha. Uh, the word Apocrypha was coined by a man named Jerome in about the, uh, be the 400s, so that'd be the 5th century, no, late 300s, 4th century, and he called it the Apocrypha, and it's from the Greek kind of concealed or hidden. Um, What had happened was, because the the line of the prophets had ended, and there was no one with the authority to speak on behalf of God and write scripture, they had other collections of books uh, that they did regard as valuable. These writings were valuable, but they were not considered scripture. Okay, they weren't considered authoritative by the Jews themselves. Here's a list of some of those uh, books. First Maccabees, second Maccabees. The, the Maccabees was a family that led Israel in a revolution for their freedom to where they became an independent nation shortly before Rome came in and took over. Uh, book of Wisdom, the book of Sirach, or sometimes called Ecclesiasticus, not to be confused with the book of Ecclesiastes. It's actually in your Old Testament. You've got Tobit, which is I just read a few weeks ago. It's a story of, of, of a, yeah, it's, it's a good story. And then there's uh, Judith. Baruch was uh, supposedly the, uh, with the prophet Jeremiah and some letters there. And then there was additions to Daniel. There's a story called Bell and the Dragon that's added to Daniel and additions to Esther. The reason I specifically put these ones is the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church throughout the centuries eventually came to adopt these and add them to what had already been established in the New Testament canon. And so they're, they're important to know. Now, it's important to realize about these books that the uh, first century church, second century, actually all of them early on, did consider these valuable writings, although they did not consider them scripture. They were called books of the church, not necessarily books of the Bible, and they were, they were meant to instruct on things like manners and Christian living and attitude and those kind of things. And, um, and so they were used widely even after Christ's time. I think it's important to remind ourselves that when we start to have this conversation about canon, again, the definition of Scripture would have to be ultimately authored by God, inspired by God. God had to be the divine author behind the writing, okay? And that's ultimately what, what people are looking for when they were establishing the canon. So why weren't these included by the Jews? I've quoted some of these already to you. Uh, in the book of Maccabees, uh, both 4 and 9, uh, they were storing stones from the temple in a convenient place on the temple hill until a prophet should come to tell them what to do with them. What were they doing? They were waiting for a prophet. To, in the Jewish mind, this would have meant that there is no one who can speak with the authority of God. You might look at that and go, okay, so they needed to wait for a prophet. But you need, to, you need to realize how important that was in their process, that this was the person that spoke on behalf of God and was a representative of God. There wasn't a prophetic voice in those days. See, there, so there was great distress in Israel, such as had not been seen since the, since had not been since the time that prophets ceased 
to appear among them. In these historical accounts of the Jews that they considered valuable, that we can recognize that they put some stock in, they themselves knew there was no prophet, there was no authority to write scripture ultimately in that time frame, 435 to 0. We look at the Jewish historian uh, Josephus. Again, uh, lots of good information from him. He was not a friend of the Christians, uh, but he was a very uh, strong Jew. He was a Pharisee, and he was writing uh, against Appion. There was writings that really were condemning the Jews as just a, in the Roman world, and he's, he's writing from Artaxerxes, who was a, uh, a Syrian king, you know, and he, it was right around that time frame of Esther and, and Malachi. From Artaxerxes to our own time, the complete history has been written, but has not been deemed worthy of equal credit with the earlier records. Okay, he's talking about those apocrypha, and he's talking about uh, the canon, and he's comparing them, because they're being uh, called to account by the, by the Romans. Uh, because of the failure of the exact succession of the prophets. We have given practical proof of our reverence, uh, of our reverence, our own scriptures, for although such long ages have now passed, no one has ventured to either add anything to them or take anything from them or alter anything in them. Again, I bring this before you to show you that the Jews did not consider those additional writings as scripture, although they considered them very valuable. It was all they had from that time frame because they didn't have the prophetic voice, that authority from God. Babylonian Talmud, these are writings of the rabbis. Okay, These are Jewish teachers. And the Talmud is, is a collection of their teachings and interpretations of the Old Testament. A lot of interesting stuff in here. And it helps you understand the Jewish mindset and kind of some of the things they taught at different times. After the last prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, last three books of our Old Testament, the divine spirit of prophetic revelation departed from the Jewish people. This is at the words of the Jewish people. This is not some anti-Jewish person writing saying, ah, the Holy Spirit left. No, this is them acknowledging that they understood the Holy Spirit had departed from Israel at that time. Why does this matter? The writing of the scriptures ceased with Malachi. And so these are some of the evidences we would point to to why the Jews did not adopt the Apocrypha. We could go on and on. There are, there are people out there, you guys, there's so much information out there about this kind of stuff. People uh, write whole books bringing sort of this historical and apologetic kind of attitude to defend why the Scripture is what it is and those kind of things. And so I'm just barely, barely giving you a taste of that. But I would love to direct you towards other information and things if you wanted to dive into that further. Uh, there was the Dead Sea Scrolls, attest to the idea that the Jews were waiting for a prophet. There was the Jewish council at Jamnia, which where they were bringing into question some of their own canon, and it stood, although it wasn't really a formal council. The Jews were, it was after the destruction of the temple, it was in AD 90, and they, um, you know, they, they weren't allowed to gather because they were so nationalistic and the Romans didn't want them, but they got permission to get together kind of informally, and they did, and they reaffirmed the Old Testament canon at that point in time. Okay, moving on. Are you awake? Are you okay? I know some of you love this kind of stuff, but I hope, my, my hope in this is that while we're talking about kind of histor in a historical way, the point is that your faith and understanding in why you believe what you believe has substance to it. I want your faith to be strengthened in understanding why these things are the way they are. Because sometimes we look at the Bible and we go, hey, this was 2,000 years ago. How could I come close to even trusting that anything in here is accurate? And many people challenge that. But in my opinion, the evidence is overwhelming in its favor. So we're going to move into the New Testament canon. We'll come back to the Apocrypha in a little bit. The good news here about the New Testament canon is throughout, uh, again, Eastern Orthodoxy, these are, these are like four main categories of Christianity, if you'll give me permission to do this, is you know, there's the Eastern Orthodox Church, the Roman Catholic Church, Anglican, and Protestant, basically, is, is what I would say we have. And uh, all, all four of those major components or categories of, of Christianity agree on the New Testament canon. Everybody say amen. Thank God. We are all in agreement about what the New Testament books should be. So there isn't a lot of debate about that, but I think it's important still to understand why did the New Testament canon, why did this happen? So you can imagine, you know, Jesus dies, he was resurrected, he ascends into heaven, the Holy Spirit comes in power, the church explodes, and now they've got to figure out what they're going to do. 
and they're persecuted. They're being, many are ultimately, as the centuries go on, are being martyred for their faith. They're, they're on their heels, man. They're getting beat, but they're growing like crazy. So it's such an amazing time in history. But what starts to happen is, as it's growing all throughout the Greek world, it's, it's in northern Africa, it's moving through the Middle East, uh, churches are being established, the apostles are starting to die out, and they're, having to, they're starting to have to go, what, what, what is being taught to these churches? Is it accurate? Is it the Word of God? And so there started to be some heresies that started to arise. There's a man named Marcion who's just kind of took Luke's gospel and he cut out everything he didn't like and made his own gospel. And he was starting to teach it and he was a member of the church. And you got to realize when, when something is becoming kind of, you know, even though they're being persecuted, it's very popular and a lot of people are getting in on the action. And there's a lot of people that don't like the Christians and they're writing all this anti-Christian stuff. Plus you got this Gnostic group, this humanistic, human uh, mind, uh, ultimate knowledge kind of thing. Uh, that, that's infiltrating their writings. And so the apostles and the apostolic fathers who are the second generation, the people that learned at the feet of the apostles, they're having to sort out what is true. Things are being taught and read in our churches that aren't actually accurate or that we don't consider true. And so they're scrambling trying to figure this out. And so you see the importance of having a canon. Plus, you've got to realize this came out of Judaism where, they, where God had already established this, write the words of God, that it may be a record, a witness of this covenant relationship between you and I. So it's logical that they would begin to put together what are the authoritative writings of God? What did God inspire? What is the breath of God from God for the church to be reading and teaching one another? I want to start with the idea that probably the most significant thing that makes the New Testament canon the New Testament canon is that it has an apostolic authority behind the writings. These aren't writings of 3rd and 4th century church fathers. These are writings that are directly connected to, most of them, the apostles themselves in some way, shape, or form. And so because these are, the, these are the guys that sat at the feet of Jesus, that got the most direct teaching and most direct revelation from God himself, and he called them, Jesus called them his apostles, which meant something in that day to them. They became the representatives, the ambassadors, the establishers of culture for the church. That's how, that's how Jesus labeled them. And so when they were launched into ministry, they're looked at as the authorities. So we see this in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul writing, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. So I want to draw your attention here. I guess I should finish this. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. You got this foundation of the apostles and the prophets. So remember, going back to the Old Testament canon, there's this progression of the prophets through the ages, the authorized ones to create the Word of God. They did. Now, in the next generation, in the new covenant, there is no greater revelation than Jesus Christ himself. You've got these apostles that sat at his feet and, and are authorized as ambassadors to him, and their teachings and writings became considered canon. This is the Word of God. This is what God himself teaches. So even if we read our good books these days, just read a great book by Andy Stanley, then, you know, that's great. It's encouraging and helpful to me, but it can't be added to the canon. It's not that authoritative. He didn't sit at the feet of Jesus in the same way, and he wasn't commissioned by Jesus to be an establisher of his church in the first century. So that's why we recognize the difference of the authority of the original apostles. That foundation is there. So in a way, you can think about it like this, that that the succession of the prophets then transitioned over to the apostles. They became the authorized ones of God. But they weren't just prophets speaking the word of God. I think that because the covenant changed and the Holy Spirit infilled them and all of us, that notion of just one man being able to hear from God at all went away. Anyway, conversation for another day. Jesus told his disciples, John chapter 16, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority. Whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. 
What's he saying to them? Now, we can draw some of this for ourselves, but Jesus in this moment is talking directly to his own disciples, saying, the Spirit's going to come upon you. This is what you're going to be able to do. He's going to remind you of the truth, and he's going to declare to you things that are to come. It's going to be the authority directly from God himself. Acts chapter 2, what do we see the early church doing? And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Why? The apostles were the authority in the early church. I don't think I probably need to explain that very much. Teaching and fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. I'm bringing all this before you today to explain to you that the reason that the New Testament canon, ultimately, the ultimate test, besides that it's breathed of God or that we believe God is the author behind it, divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit, is that it has an apostolic authority behind it. Whether it was written directly like by an apostle like Paul or gospels like Luke and Mark, Mark being an immediate disciple of Peter who traveled with Peter, that's where that gospel comes from. Luke traveled with Paul. We'll talk about that. There's an apostolic connection. These were recognized. The four gospels actually were recognized even by the end of the first century. All four of them had been being circulated, and the early church fathers were already acknowledging them as Scripture. So the emphasis being really that there's such a uh, there's there's an authority there with the apostles that gives us the foundation to uh, call those writings scripture. Uh, a man named Ned Stonehouse, he was a founder of Westminster Seminary. He was a New Testament scholar. Wrote this, speaking of apostolic authority, speaks forth in the New Testament, which speaks forth in the New Testament is never detached from the authority of the Lord. In the epistles, there is consistent recognition that in the church, there is only one absolute authority, the authority of the Lord himself. Wherever the apostles speak with authority, they do so as exercising the Lord's authority. Thus, for example, while Paul defends his authority as an apostle, he bases his claim solely and directly upon his commission by the Lord. Let's look at some of this. Early in Galatians, Paul's defending his apostleship, that he is an apostle. But he, he writes this in 1 Corinthians, and I want you to just stop and consider the audacity of this statement. Imagine if you wrote this, okay? Imagine you wrote this. If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing you are a command of the Lord. Wow. You say, wow, Paul maybe had an ego problem. I don't think he did. (laughs) Paul knew what he had been commissioned to do. He understood his authority. He knew that he knew that he carried the word of the Lord, that he'd been commissioned by God to carry that kind of authority and to give that kind of direction to the church. And while he humbles himself so often before the churches, every once in a while you see this statement where he's just like, uh, just absolute authority. It's amazing. And he, he understood that, and, and that's what we look back on, on those guys, knowing uh, that, that they had that, that they carried that. Uh, Stonehouse goes on, he says, The only one who speaks in the New Testament with an authority that is underived and self-authenticated is the Lord. Self-authenticated. None of these guys are writing with authority saying, Hey guys, I got this authority. I've declared it about myself. They, they write it saying, God gave me this authority. There is no self-derived authority. Which reminds me of a kind of this, when we're talking about the absolute authority of the Scripture, you kind of get in this situation where, doesn't there come to a point where there's a circular argument at the top of the totem pole here, at the top of the chain, where God says, I'm the ultimate authority, and you're like, how can the ultimate authority be self-authorized? You understand what I'm saying? Philosophers argue about this all the time, and it's one of the things that, that kind of prompts the idea that there is God. But if you're going to make an appeal to something being absolutely authoritative, then that absolutely authoritative thing has to authorize itself in order to be absolutely authoritative. Okay? All right. Forget it. Forget I said that. If you like that, great. Otherwise, forget it. Now, something that, you know, a lot of liberal theologians make this argument that the apostles had no idea that what they were writing was Scripture, nor that it would be in the Bible, and I disagree, and I'm going to tell you why. Uh, this is Second Peter chapter 3, verses 15 through 16. And count it, patient, count it the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. 
There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. That word other is deliberately in there. Okay, Paul is not saying, or Peter is not saying, they're twisting the words just like they do the scriptures, because that would discount Paul's writings as not being scripture. But he says, but he, they twist his writings just like they do the other scriptures. These guys were already acknowledging that some of these writings and testimony of the New Testament were the word of God and to be regarded as authoritative. So we see Peter acknowledging Paul's authority. And if you read uh, Paul's accounts of his interactions with Peter, these guys butted heads a couple of times, didn't they? In fact, uh, Paul hadn't been to Jerusalem in 14 years. And he went there and presented his gospel that he'd been teaching to the rest of the apostles, and they recognized the grace that was in him, extended to him the right hand of fellowship, and acknowledged Paul as an apostle. Again, Paul writing in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 18, For the Scripture says, okay, again, when these guys use the word Scripture, what are they talking about? The authoritative Word of God, the things that have come from God, not just information written, but the authoritative Word of God. You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Okay, well, if the Scripture says that, where does it say that? And I know all of you know that that first one, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, because you all know the book of Deuteronomy so well, right? It's in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4. Paul's quoting Scripture. And the laborer deserves his wages. Wait a minute. J.R., I memorized the whole book of Deuteronomy, and I don't remember that being in there. Well, there's a reason you don't remember it being in there, because it's not in there. Where is it? Anybody know? Luke chapter 10. What is Paul quoting as Scripture? The Gospel of Luke. That tells you several things. First of all, that he's acknowledging what Luke wrote was the Gospel and was true, was authorized by God, inspired by the Holy Spirit. But how did Paul know what Luke wrote? Because Paul was the apostolic authority behind Luke's writing. Luke was a doctor in the book of Acts who traveled with Paul. He traveled throughout this Asia Minor, and he's, he's seeing all these things. You, if you read Acts, you see that Luke is writing, because Luke wrote the book of Acts as well. Luke is writing, they, 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 and then he starts going, we, 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 right? Luke was with Paul. And so there, 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 there's this understanding. So Paul knew what Luke had written. He apparently authorized it somehow. It was circulating throughout the churches and really was never disputed as canon at all, along with the other three Gospels. Uh, There's so much good stories behind some of this stuff. The word used for Scripture, it's graphe. It's used 50-some times in the New Testament. And there are two times where it refers to the New Testament writings themselves. And I just showed them to you. And it's exactly the same word. Exactly the same word they would refer to the Old Testament canon. They referred to the New Testament writings, graphe. It was these, this written authoritative word of God. I just want to remind you that in order for the writings to go in the canon, to be considered in the Bible, to be, they had to be inspired by the Holy Spirit. We have to recognize them and, and see in them the very nature and the words of God, and it has to... Uh, work with the rest of what we already have established as Scripture. If we had these massive contradictions, which there's a lot of writings out there that talk about those contradictions, and I've looked into so many of them, maybe we'll talk about some of them in the next few weeks, that, that, are, that are easily refuted. Okay? The, the Scripture is very unified in its um, story of redemption, and even historically. But I do want to remind us that while we're talking about all these historical details of why this is valuable, at the end of the day, what really makes it valuable and what really makes it authoritative it is that it is inspired by the Holy Spirit. God is the ultimate author behind these words. They are His word. Remember we talked a few weeks ago about you know, to disbelieve or disobey. The word of God is to disbelieve or disobey God Himself. We are to take Him at His word. He is in His word. He's, he isn't just giving a dim reflection of himself, um, it, this is actually who he is, and it, and it describes it. The original apostles themselves considered their writings authoritative. I mean, you saw Paul's attitude, you hear Peter's attitude. They knew they were authoritative. But then you get in the second generation of church leaders, people like Clement of Rome, people like Polycarp, people like Ignatius, 
Uh, you, you've got these guys that were learned at the feet of the apostles, and they're continuing writing and teaching the church, and they're establishing the church on the earth, but they themselves recognize and acknowledge themselves that they are not of equal authority with the apostles. They don't carry that same thing that the original apostles did. Polycarp, and, and we're not ta- again, we're not talking, I mean, you, you know, if you watch the Da Vinci Code and you let that kind of stuff uh, start to, in, to, to influence your thinking where the church just in, in, like in, the, in the late 300s hijacked Christianity, uh, eliminated all these writings, and then made these writings authoritative and these writings not authoritative and forced it upon the people, they would have had to go, you, there are writings, okay, uh, I'm getting so excited, sorry. There are, um, I forget what it's called, oh, it's the, the Anti-Nicene Fathers. It is a collection of all the writings of the church before the Council of Nicaea, which, if you're familiar with the Da Vinci Code, <laughs> would be about that time that they say at the Council of Nicaea, they kind of just authoritatively, with Constantinople, with Constantine, shut down all these other writings, and they decided what Christianity was going to be. However, we have all of these writings. I went online because I'm like, I want these writings. The, the writings of the Antinician Fathers, which is all the writings from the first century to the Council of Nicaea. And guess what? See this? You ever seen the encyclopedia sets that are like this long, like three feet long, and thousands upon thousands upon thousands of pages? That's what it is. Ten volumes of the writings of the early church prior to the Council of Nicaea. Thousands of references to the New Testament writings before they were even called the canon. So we know that in those writings, the early church was immediately considering, and every one of them is listed, by the way, as authoritative by the early church. And so when I went online, I'm like, I want to buy this. And then I saw that it was a giant set of writings that cost $600. Not to mention I'd never be able to read them all huge amount of information there. So we, we learn about Clement and some of the things he, he wrote saying, you know, that, that our apostles, you know, and he indicates that they had greater authority. Clement, Clement was, um, let's, we'll talk history here for a second. He, he was considered really the first pope. The Catholic Church considers him the first pope. He was the bishop in Rome. So the early Christian church established bishops right away because Paul talks about having elders and overseers. And, and so they're using, they have, and they called them presbyters. They had bishops and presbyters. So they had the overseers and they had elders in the local churches. And then they had overseers in the cities. And Clement was the overseer in Rome. And, and he was writing to the church in, in Corinth. His letter is twice as long as the book of Hebrews. But what's going on is the Corinthians are always causing trouble, as they were for Paul, and they tried to throw out all their elders. Not to give any of you any ideas for anything around here, okay? <laughs> and Clement writes him a letter and he says, Our apostles put these men in place. Don't throw them out. These are good guys. And our apostles knew what they were doing. They were authoritative. Don't throw them out. Now, we can learn a lot about that. First of all, how Clement understood that his own authority did not equal that of the apostles. He didn't have the authority to write Scripture, but he does appeal to their authority as one of their students. And also we start to see some of the development of the church where why did this bishop in Rome feel that he had authority over the church in Corinth? We're seeing started those, some of those indications of the early hierarchy starting to establish within the church. And so we start, then you start to understand in the, in the progression of history why the church became the way it did. Uh, <clears throat> Polycarp, Clement of Alexandria, he was like in, in later on, they would refer to the Old Testament and New Testament writings as the scriptures. Um, I wanted to read you this from a, a guy named Justin Martyr. He was an early church father. He lived from 100 to 165. And in his first apologetic, he wrote, I just found this so encouraging. And on the day called Sunday... All who live in the cities or in the country gather together in one place. And the memoirs, of, the memoirs of the apostles or the writings of the prophets are read. As long as time permits, then when the reader has ceased, the president verbally instructs and exhorts to the imitation of these good things. Does that sound familiar? I hear a lot of people like, oh, we just made this up in the last hundred years. No, we didn't. This has been going on since the beginning. Even in Acts, we see they gathered in homes and they gathered at the temple. They gathered in big groups. 
They gathered in small groups. They dedicated themselves to the reading of the word of the prophets and the apostles. And I just found that so encouraging to my heart about God has been so faithful to lead us, hasn't he? He has not abandoned us. Surely I will be with you always to the very end of the age, he said. All of that leading me to the, to the, bringing you to the idea that the canon closed with John's writing in the book of Revelation. That there are no, so are we, was there additional writings later that we should have added to the scripture? Are there writings today that when we discover them we should add them to the scripture? I don't think so. According to that apostolic authority and the by and large consensus of the early church, recognizing right away, see, they're, 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 they were receiving these things firsthand, first, second, third generation. You know, these are, these are the people that, that knew who Peter was, who sat at the feet of Paul, and they were trustworthy. And so all of these things lead us to why, what the New, can, New Testament canon is today. And there's virtually no, no challenges to that. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Okay, before I go on, you just notice there. There was a sequence of the prophets. This is where the scripture came from. But now it comes from the son whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also he created the world. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. We talked about this a few weeks ago. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. The greatest revelation of God ever to mankind is Jesus Christ himself. He is the exact imprint of the nature of God. There can be no greater revelation than Jesus Christ himself. God himself made himself known to man. Why does this matter? This, this is my answer to things like Mormonism or Islam. That somehow now there's been a greater revelation than Jesus Christ himself. Muhammad was a greater revelation of, of God than Jesus Christ himself. Joseph Smith had a greater revelation than Jesus Christ himself on the earth. I don't think so. I don't think so. And so that's why we would look at those things and, and, and this kind of idea. And that's why we don't add to the canon today. Yes, there are good books of teaching and things that help us learn, but there is no authority that trumps that which came with the revelation of Jesus Christ. Just like the prophets were the messengers of God and who brought God's interpretation into the Old Testament events, so also the apostles brought the interpretation of the incarnation of Christ into the current events. And those are what we look to as authoritative for the body of Christ. So what about the church, including the Apocrypha? Why did it come to be that uh, the Catholic Church began to include them in the 1500s? Why did the Eastern Orthodox Church? Uh, I think you need to understand that the church was all one church until the Orthodox, the Roman Catholics, and the Eastern Orthodox split. So we were basically all one church. There was a lot of different variation within it, but they were virtually considered one church. And, and then they, 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 started, they began to split over some things, and it, there was a tiny bit of theological reasoning for that, and it's pretty minuscule, actually. What really was going on is in the Roman Empire, the Roman Empire got split east and west, and it was starting to fall apart, and you also had the church get split east and west. And so you had these western Rome-type churches, and then you had down in, in Egypt, you've got the Coptic church kind of came out of that time frame as well, and, and you've got over in Constantinople, which is, you know, present-day Istanbul, Turkey, you know, so you got this east and west, and they split, and anyway, long story there. But then you have, in the 1500s, you have uh, the Reformation, and this is where a man named Martin Luther, who was a Catholic priest, decided he did not agree with a number of things. He'd gotten his hands on some more of the Scripture, and what was the canon, and he, and, he, and he nailed his argument to the door of the church one day, uh, just wanting to stir debate, I think, ultimately, he was kicked out of the church. And what had happened was, you know, you've you got things coming along like the printing press, and the information is starting to spread. I mean, the, the scripture used to be chained to the pulpit, literally. 
It was not accessible. Remember, I told you that Moses distributed the word of God to the elders and the priests. There was a distribution of the word of God. It was accessible. But there was a period of time in our history where it wasn't. And as it became more and more accessible, you started to see groups. You have... You know, you had the Lutherans come out of the Reformation, a group called the Anabaptists, which in a lot of ways would be similar to, to how we operate today. And they were challenging some of the beliefs of the Catholic Church. And so when Luther got kicked out of the church and it just exploded, I mean, there just lots of different groups rallied to Luther because it was just it, someone was waiting for someone to lead a, where, where does the word Protestant come from? Protestant. Protest. The Protestants were protesting some of the beliefs of the Roman Catholic Church at that time. So several years later, in response to Luther's teaching, which ultimately revolved around the idea of salvation by grace through faith alone, salvation by faith alone, not by works, then that's when the Roman Catholic Church rallied at the Council of Trent and they canonized those books. They, they then at that point said, these are Scripture officially. Up until that point, They had not been acknowledged as scripture, although they were considered books of the church. But when they were given that level of authority, and see, that's how when when you look at Roman Catholicism now, you know, a very different mode of operation. They have priests who are celibate. They have, they believe in things like praying to saints or praying to the dead, or that you can pray for the dead in order that they come out of a place called purgatory, which is sort of in between heaven and hell. They have a strong emphasis on alms and things like that that comes from the book of Tobit. And, and so this is where the importance of recognizing the authority of Scripture, well, why it's so valuable is because when we put these foundational stones in place, we begin to build upon them. And if some of these stones are different, you're going to end up with a different structure. And so if we believed in praying for the dead, that would really change our message of salvation, wouldn't it? And it would change our concept of responsibility, and it, it, it's appointed one time for a man to die and then face judgment. That would change our view. And you have to understand, that's what influences the way the Catholic Church operates. If you look at Eastern or- the Eastern Orthodox, I don't know a lot about them, but they, the Greek Orthodox are similar. In Greece, when we were there last year, there is a similar feel to Catholicism, but some things are different. And, and so you gotta, that, that's how those came to be recognized as Scripture. I think... Uh, one thing I want to, yeah, yes, I have two minutes still. Okay, here we go. Um, one of the reasons, too, you've you got to understand, they didn't, this, this wasn't just, just some flippant, ah, we're going to grab these other books, too, and adopt them. You've got to realize that this was a controversy from the beginning. That early on, um, constantly there would be somebody bringing up these apocryphal books and saying, shouldn't these be in the canon? And... Never were they ratified as canon. They were continually rejected. One of the things we look at in the New Testament is that 295 times, roughly, Jesus and the New Testament authors quote the Old Testament. Never once, not once, do they quote any of those apocryphal writings. They weren't regarded as authoritative. Jesus didn't dispute with the Jews what the writings were. If Jesus is like, wow, you missed this whole set of scripture that you're ignoring, I think he probably would have called them out on it. And... Uh, so there was, but there was always debate in the early church about it. And there, you probably know who Augustine is. You've, you've heard of him. And the, you probably you've heard of Jerome too. And these were two guys at the same time. Jerome was older than Augustine. And Augustine was this quickly rising bishop through the ranks. Uh, very smart. He's responsible for a lot of theological development and, and helpfulness. And he was off on some things. And I think we all are and they all were at times. But the word of God through time has filtered those inaccuracies out. Thank God for his word, because ultimately his word is authoritative, not these guys. Well, they were translating, the, Jerome had translated the Greek Old Testament into Latin. And then he decided to go back and translate the Hebrew Old Testament into Latin, because he thought he was going to get a more accurate rendition. There's Way more to this story. Augustine was like, so Jerome is writing, and he writes, he's writing the New Testament, uh, the, yeah, the, the Old Testament writings, and and. And there, he and Augustine both affirmed all of the New Testament books we have today exactly, as well as some of the earlier writings, although there was never a complete list until around 300-ish AD. So Augustine is saying, hey, copy the apocryphal books too. And Jerome's like, no. And Augustine's like, but I like them. And Jerome's like, but they're not canon. 
And Augustine's like, but they're useful. So, and, and Jerome refused, and Augustine kept putting pressure on him, and finally he copied a couple of them, and then he died. And then Augustine went ahead and had the rest of them finished. And so that, what happened, so it's called the Latin Vulgate. Maybe you've heard of that. It was a big deal that the Bible got translated into the Latin of the day. And that's why those writings gained popularity, because they were distributed along with the Scripture and then they started to fuel the doctrinal behavior of the church. And then by the time Martin Luther shows up in 1500, talking a lot of time went by for all these things to work their way into the practices of the church, they had become ingrained in it. And so uh, ultimately the Catholics adopted it as scripture. Okay, I want to conclude with this. Two, say, two things I want to read to you quickly. This is from Wayne Grudem, who is the author of my favorite systematic theology. The preservation and correct assembling of the canon of Scripture should ultimately be seen by believers then, not as part of church history subsequent to God's great central acts of redemption for his people, but as an integral part of the history of redemption itself. Just as God was at work in creation, in the calling of his people Israel, in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, and in the early work and writings of the apostles, so God was at work in the preserving and assembling together of the books of Scripture for the benefit of his people for the entire church age. Ultimately then, and I resonate this so I want you to hear this, ultimately, we base our confidence in the correctness of our present canon on the faithfulness of God. That's the ultimate reason that we really believe it's worth God loves us and he's faithful. And, and finally, this last Scripture Isaiah 55, 10 through 11. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth us and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in this thing for which I sent it. Would you stand please? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are faithful. Lord, that while we can look at history and sometimes wonder and not sure, sometimes we don't understand why you've instructed us in some of the things you have, or when our culture is raging against some of your values and your ways, Lord, we get insecure about it and not sure. And Father, we just thank you that you are faithful and that ultimately you lead us in relationship with you and that you, we, you use your word to do that. Lord, I thank you for all the Christians that have gone before us. Lord, the, the 2,000 years of development and instruction and people that have been faithful even when they were wrong, Lord, to, to lead the church, to be what you said it would be, so, so expansive with energy, as Brian likes to say, that the gates of hell could not prevail against it. So, Father, I pray that you would stir this in the people's hearts today and that your word, even in our own individual lives, would not return empty, but would do what you send it out to do. In Jesus' name, amen.